Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro natural physique athlete, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined again by the man, Eric Helms, and we're back for some more bodybuilding talk. We're going to be picking up where we left off in the last episode, talking about macros, and specifically in the context of bulking. So last time we talked about protein, and we're going to be carrying on with carbs and fats and hopefully getting on to some more depth into food composition and micronutrients as well. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing well. I love the new intro, Pro Physique Athlete. It's a nice <laughs> ring to it. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. So, no yeah, starting off with carbs. I think this is a very controversial topic, especially like in social media, you know, you have all these people like mm. worrying about carbs and people have very strong opinions about it. And yeah, yeah I'd love to now hear your thoughts on the role of carbs for bodybuilding and specifically in the context of bulking. Yeah, so um, carbs are, I generally like to think of carbs and fats in the same kind of category as primarily for energy. You know, we discussed uh, protein being uh, used some to some degree for energy, but primarily being uh, a structural macronutrient, if you will, relative to carbohydrates and fat. I think last time I was on, um, so often when I set protein, it's grams per kg. When I think about carbohydrate, um, I often think about it as a percentage of, of calories, same thing with fat. So, um, if you kind of go through like your order of operations of setting up someone's mm -hmm. nutrition plan, um, if you're using a, you know, a quantitative approach, often it starts with, okay, what are our energy needs? All right, let's figure out the amount of protein that's appropriate. What are the calories from that? What do we have remaining? And then what is the proportion? of calories that I want from carbohydrates and fat. Um, and that gives you uh, a pretty easy way to, to math it out. Um, and, you know, generally, I think a good way to think of carbohydrates in athletic context, uh, which I like to consider bodybuilders athletes, even, I don't know if this, if, if bodybuilding itself is a sport, oh, um, yeah. cause we train <laughs> at the very least. Yeah. Is, uh, is that, you know, in athletic context is probably appropriate and carbohydrates essentially are what the primary fuel uh, that we use for high intensity activity. Um, they have a relatively controversial role in resistance training, but they're relatively well established as useful in other sports. So we have meta analyses and pretty, pretty solid study designs showing like it enhances cycling time trial, time trial performance and uh, that uh, peri and even intra-workout uh, carbohydrates can basically impact extended duration, high intensity exercise. Of course, intensity is going to be not as high as intensity as when we think about high intensity, but the type of high intensity you can do for multiple hours of, of moving. Um, so high aerobic intensity. Now, the, the controversial nature of carbohydrates in resistance training really comes down to the intermittent nature of it. So when we are training uh, like most of the time, even with people who are taking relatively short rests, we have a really, really skewed work to rest ratio compared to most other sports, you know, mm. like, uh, I think powerlifting is probably the most extreme, you know, you got a set yeah. of three to five reps most of the time that's going to last 15 seconds at most. Um, and then you rest for five minutes. So if you actually math out the time spent in the gym, a two hour workout, you're actually only training for like 15 minutes, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> The rest of the time is spent in recovery. Um, now, interestingly enough, you are using energy in recovery, you know, to get back to ener energy homeostasis and, you know, all the different energy systems 
are essentially fueling one another and it's a big cycle. So it's not that we don't use certain energy systems because I have definitely heard people make an argument that, hey, due, due to the intermittent nature, the only thing we need to worry about is, you know, creatine phosphate uh, and the ATP that's already present and, and mm. very limited utility of, of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Essentially, everything is kind of used. And um, probably the most telling st uh, research that we have actually recently came out um, that gave us a little more insight into the nature of resistance training and the effects on glycogen storage. So we've had research on glycogen usage from resistance training going back to the 90s, to my uh, knowledge, and from anywhere from relatively low to, rel to moderately high volume for a given muscle group, you typically see between like 20 to 40% glycogen depletion. And the way most people think about that when they read those, that research is, oh, shit, I still got, you know, 60 to 80% of my glycogen left. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But um, in reality, there is only a certain degree of glycogen depletion that we can reach before we start to see energetic shifts and changes in subjective feelings of fatigue and subsequently on performance. So our body likes to preserve a certain amount of glycogen. Um, mm. And, you know, that makes sense from a survival perspective. It is a it's it's the fuel you use for for, you know, if we think about ourselves from what was high intensity activity before we decided to, you know, go to 24 hour fitness and and put pick things up, put them down for no real reason, you know, like sprinting away from from other tribes or hunting, you know, so yeah. that's something you want to preserve and you want to have available. So once you get sufficiently glycogen depleted, there seems to be, at least in terms of a speculative model, uh, some degree of a quote unquote central governor uh, effect. So as you get more and more collection depleted, you feel worse. It, it ramps down your intensity and you see shifts in, in substrate utility. You start training at basically a lower intensity um, and it can impact your ability to perform. So that's one thing to consider. And then the more recent study that I mentioned, um, they actually looked at different sites of glycogen depletion. So once again, they found that from a relatively moderate, moderate, maybe to moderately high intensity training program, like I think it was four sets of five of deficit deadlifts and four sets of five of squats, if I recall correctly, and then some Bulgarian split squats. And they looked at glycogen depletion and some lower body musculature. And they noticed, yeah, you know, we've only got about that 30 or 40% overall glycogen depletion. However, more than half of the type two fibers were specifically depleted. And when they looked at the within fiber uh, glycogen storage sites, the ones that were specifically next to the contractile machinery were the most depleted specifically in type two fibers. And in some cases it was near total glycogen depletion for that site on those types of fibers. So there is definitely selective glycogen depletion that is impacted by a resistance training session, even when it's not high rep, you know, which kind of goes against the way people sometimes think about, oh, we're, we're just using creatine phosphate unless we're doing high reps. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is you know, specific to the fibers that are actually doing the work. And this may be part of the reason why you will see uh, an inability to, to get back to peak performance within 24 to 48 hours in a lot of the time course of fatigue studies. Probably not the only one. There's also effects with muscle damage, et cetera. But um, certainly, I think glycogen is something that, that is a relevant concern. But more so than that, we are understanding that there are other ways that, that carbohydrates impact our performance, even when glycogen is not the limiting factor. So for those who aren't aware, um, there are a couple lines of research that have found carbohydrates to improve performance in conditions where they could not plausibly impact glycogen levels. So uh, one line of performance is what's called the carbohydrate mouth rinse. 
Okay. Um, and I would say that 80% of the studies that show an effect here are on endurance training, but there's a handful and they are the minority that seem to impact resistance training performance. And what the participants are doing is they're taking like Gatorade, a carbohydrate solution, and every between every set, they put a little bit in their mouth, swish it around and spit it out. So there's actually zero ingestion of carbohydrate, but in some cases, it seems to improve performance. And uh, it's definitely, you know, more a more likely effect when you're doing endurance exercise and in the studies uh that where there are effects in resistance training it's typically longer duration higher repetition more total muscle mass being used um so there's probably some impact of you know how similar is it to continuous exercise where you're going to get an effect but what this tells us is that there are carbohydrate sensing uh mechanisms in the mouth which impact reward centers uh we've got this from some like mri research and uh, could potentially have knock-on effects on fatigue mitigation and therefore performance. So this is pretty cool. Um, and you know, there was some theorizing that this might have been just the sensation of sweet in the mouth rather than actual carbohydrates, but mm. they have done uh, double-blind placebo controls where they compare, say, sucralose, an artificial sweetener with no carbohydrate, to actual carbohydrate, and carbohydrate has numerous times now beat out the artificial sweeteners. Mm. And then the final potential mechanism where I'm going to say carbohydrate, but this is actually probably better stated and you'll understand why as food uh, or anything <laughs> that blunts satiety can impact performance is there's been a series of studies by Naharudin and colleagues, the first of which came out and they took uh, resistance trained individuals who habitually consumed breakfast and they had them wake up fasted. One group got breakfast, one group got water. And the breakfast group was able to perform more total reps on the bench press and squat two hours after breakfast uh, when they did 70% uh, of 1RM uh, AMRAPs, so four per, per exercise. And you go, okay, cool. So water is worse first thing in the morning than eating breakfast. However, it wasn't double-blind, placebo-controlled, or anything like that. So then another study came out where they uh, Naharudin went back and went, all right, let's, let's further this line of research. And I really do like this line of research that came out. And they compared a group that had a placebo breakfast, and I'll explain how they did that, and actual breakfast and then water. Now, the, now the breakfast is you know, like in quotes because no one would, would choose to eat this for breakfast. It's basically a carbohydrate-laden orange sludge or a, uh, an artificially sweetened dominant or orange sludge that are matched, matched for uh, flavor and, um, and consistency. And they were rated as gross, basically, if you look at some of the subjective ratings. <laughs> but they were also rated as being more satiating than water. And interestingly enough, even though one group got like over 100 grams of carbohydrate and the other group got like 1.5, just from some of the fiber in, in included in the, in the sludge, and the other group got zero, both the placebo group and the carbohydrate group performed similarly uh, in, the, in the morning. And they both beat out the water condition with no significant differences between one another. And then even further, Naharudin went, okay, you know, our hypothesis here is that there's either some placebo effect from consuming anything, or there could be some type of satiating effect. Uh, we don't know which it is. Is there some kind of psychological effect? What's going on here? So they came back and did another study where they compared a liquid carbohydrate to a sludge carbohydrate. And they actually found that the sludge carbohydrate outperformed the liquid. So in this case, they remove the potential of a placebo effect of thinking I'm getting carbohydrate because both groups knew and actually did get carbohydrate, 
but one had a more satiating meal because it was sludge. Again, they didn't like it, but it was satiating compared to the liquid group, which was less satiating, and they piloted that, and they performed better. So it seems that for, I would describe these as uh, moderate, like volume sessions, you know, eight total sets, it's not huge, that for at least for moderate volume resistance training, the presence of having, uh, you know, hunger may be impeding performance, and your pre-workout meal maybe just needs to be sufficient to blunt that. Hmm. With that said, we've also got, and it might even be published by the time this podcast uh, drops, Bill, um, my uh, student, Andrew King, uh, he is the first author on a sports medicine meta-analysis where we looked at the effect of carbohydrate on resistance training performance. And we found that overall there wasn't, it was an effect. Um, and it seemed to be more prominent when you're doing higher total volumes based, based on our meta regression, uh, more time spent in a fasted state. So the longer fasting periods prior to training and the study protocols. And then finally, uh, it had a greater effect when looking at lower versus upper body musculature. So essentially using more muscles, uh, larger muscles, and basically having a higher energy turnover. Hmm. And this all kind of comports with the idea that the more energy demanding your training is, the more carbohydrate might become a factor. And I think the most conservative recommendation to make sure that you're not impeding performance is that for training sessions where it's not a, a leg day or a full body day or, you know, a chest and back with a bunch of compounds or something like that, or it's not, you know, first thing in the morning and you're doing a fair amount of volume is just have something to make sure that you're not going into the workout hungry. Um, and, you know, if you're not hungry at all and you're deep in the off season and you've been bulking and you're eating a lot of food, it could just be something liquid. That's probably fine. Um, however, if you're doing something that is high volume, uh, lots of compound movements, a leg day type of deal, especially if there's a fasting window beforehand, it wouldn't be a bad idea to actually, you know, think about how much carbohydrate you get in prior to that training session and maybe consume something like you know, one to two grams per kilogram a couple hours prior. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and that kind of covers all of our bases of the known mechanisms by which we could potentially improve performance or at least prevent a, 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 a mitigated performance, you know, worse performance from being fatigued or, or fasted or hungry. And yeah, those are all basically the, 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 the data we have and, and the potential mechanisms and kind of how it all fits together to give some practical recommendations. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it is a definitely a, a relatively murky area of research. And I'm glad that we've got this meta-analysis. I think, uh, you know, Menno Henselman and colleagues, they just did a systematic review and they basically said, hey, it probably doesn't matter. And I can understand why they came to that conclusion, because there is a lot of, um, you know, disparate research on this. Some studies showing an effect, some studies showing there's not an effect. But when you start to control for these variables quantitatively and you do uh, statistical, you know, meta-regression as well as um, uh, meta-analysis, you, you can start to see the patterns and you can, and they, and they make sense. So, uh, yeah, it, it is not the most critical factor for, for a bodybuilder by any means. Um, but you might get a little something out of uh, ensuring that you have adequate carbohydrate on a day-to-day -day basis and that you're you're fueling sufficiently for training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's super cool to hear. And, you know, that we're getting this hot off the press. In terms of, you know, just some rules of thumb for people, do you have any suggestions in terms of actual, like, numbers of sort of minimum carb intake for someone who's trying to build muscle? 
Yeah, I think, you know, there, there has there have been some recommendations of like four to seven grams per kg, mm-hmm. um, which for the uh, Americans listening, that's like, geez, now I have to do math on the fly. <laughs> oh, not again. You know, <laughs> it's slightly less than half of that, right? So it'd be like uh, two to two to three grams per pound or something like that. Does that sound right? Ish. I think it is. <laughs> So yeah, for, I'll, I'll, I'll do the math for them for someone who weighs 220 pounds because that way it's easy. They're 100 kilograms. So if you're a 220 pound person, um, we're talking about 400 to 700 grams of carbohydrate a day, um, and you can you can you can back calculate the math from there to figure out what the the grams per pound are. But generally, I think that is that recommendation was made in a paper that kind of just took general athlete recommendations and applied them to like sprinters and jumpers and throwers and Olympic weightlifters and bodybuilders. Mm. And I think that's, that's nice, but I think it should probably be based on your total energy intake, um, which probably is related to how much energy output you have in your training to some degree, at least it's going to be a component of it. Um, so yeah, I, I generally think of like first start with how big of a surplus do you want? And then I would recommend having your carbohydrate range, somewhere in the range of uh what is remaining after you set your fat and, and protein because i normally set carbs last and i think the the reasonable ranges for fat based upon the collective data we have on health performance and what might be too low of an intake before you start to see you know changes in resting concentrations of hormones is somewhere between 20 to 40 percent of calories mm-hmm. um and you know I think if you try the higher end of that fat intake and you notice that it puts you well below like four grams per kg of carbohydrate, then maybe, you know, bump it down a little bit. So I think it's probably not a bad idea to have like at least like at a minimum, maybe one gram per pound of carbohydrate in the off season, mm-hmm. I think is, is like, but that's, I think that's low. I think there are probably will, I, I say that as a minimum because I think there probably will be some people for whom that's sufficient. They have personal preference towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they just have a unique metabolic characteristics where that is, that's okay. Uh, but I think it is rare. And I think most bodybuilders would benefit from having more than that, probably closer to, to two grams per pound um, or somewhere in between those two values. So yeah, I think you can, if you work backwards and you think, okay, that's probably where I want to set my minimum, you know, around body weight or slightly more. Uh, and then where does that allow me to play with for my fat based upon my total, total calorie allotment, then you're good to go. And then generally I would just advise that when you're training, make sure it comes, you know, one to two hours after a meal. And if it's a, if it's a big session, maybe closer to two hours and have it be a larger carbohydrate containing meal. Uh, that is um, probably your largest proportion of carbohydrate in the day on something like a leg day. And that might help you perform a little better, which might have knock on positive effects on your, your, your growth in the off season. Yep. The growth. It's all what we're all after. So yeah, you know, being, you know, pretty well acquainted with the research recently, what kind of, I guess, effect sizes are we talking about here when it comes to carbs? Yeah. Let me uh, pull up real quick. So I can actually remember the effect size from the research uh, or from or from the study. Because um, again, it should be out by the time this is published. Let's see if um, I can beat you guys. <laughs> Let's yeah. See if should be out Sunday. So like that's 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 the one thing um, I don't want to necessarily 
jump the gun. Um, in fact, I'm not even sure I, I should be giving the effect size, <laughs> but I, uh, I recall it was moderate. Um, that that's probably cool if I just give yeah, you yeah. the effect size range. So it's actually, it was, actually was a moderate effect. Um, but again, depending on the sub analysis, like if you were to only look at upper body exercise or, or shorter fasting periods, sometimes it was trivial. Mm. So the, um, overall effect size was heavily driven by lower body training studies with longer fasting duration durations, which is important to note, you know? So like if you're doing, if you're doing an arm day at 3 PM in deep in the off season, like it probably doesn't matter, you know? Um, <laughs> But if, if you're waking up for a, a morning leg session and, you know, you've you've only been post-contest prep for a couple of months and you're like still kind of recovering, yeah, it's probably good to get the food in, you know, because you're, you're hungry all the time anyway. So I think it is, um, it is, it is to some degree context dependent, but in certain contexts, it can have a, a notable effect based on that moderate effect size. Mm -hmm. What if I'm a professional strict curler? Professional strict curler. I guess if you're doing a lot of volume <laughs> on curls and regularly training them, um, you know, and especially if, if if you're moving the kind of weights that those guys sometimes do, like you know, if if you're throwing one plate plus around on curls, then then you know it's not like my arm day. Let's put yeah, it that that's way. the dream. Got to yeah. hit that one plate curl. <laughs> that's right. And then yeah, in terms of you know, I feel like once you get above a certain threshold with carbs, you start getting into this more gray zone. How would you recommend people try this out for themselves and and figure it out? Yeah, I what I often do is suggest people to try a diet where 40% of their their, uh, their energy comes from fat and then 20% of energy comes from fat mm. and basically do a crossover with themselves. So yeah, nice. they do they they spend a couple months at 20% of their calories from fat, see how they look, see how they perform, see how they feel. Um, you know, see if they, they like that diet because the vast majority of people who do this won't find any quantitative difference that they can tell, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, my performance wasn't going up faster, you know, my, my weight went up a little bit then plateaued, but I wasn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't really affect, uh, anything. I didn't notice that my skin folds were going up or visually I looked fatter or in either, in either case, sometimes you might see some difference. Like you could be more watery while you're on a higher carb diet, which isn't actually a problem, I don't think, but it might mess with your head. Um, you know, or you might look a little better on a higher carb diet because you're maybe were a little bit depleted previously, but yeah. So I think most people are not going to notice much of a difference in terms of bodybuilding outcomes, they, but they may have some pretty strong personal preferences. And the only time it's really an issue is when those two things contrast, but I think most times they don't. But anyway, what I'd recommend is spend a couple of months at 20% of your calories from fat and then spend a couple months at 40% of your calories from fat. And then here's the one that I really recommend as a scientist that most people don't do. Do it again, just to make mm. sure that it wasn't just some random other, other effect during those two months that was driving those changes. And if you see a consistent pattern where uh, one of those two provided better training you know, effort or rates of progress uh, or, or a better look, or really you're just like, man, I really hate the diet that is X percent then go with, with the one that, that seems to be better for you. Um, and be aware that this might change over time with, with age, uh, with different activity levels outside of the gym, uh, and potentially with changing the amount of total volume you perform over time, uh, if it's substantial enough. Like if you're adding you know, 20%, probably not much. But yeah, just be open to the fact that you may not always be the exact same uh, athlete. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. First of all, yeah, like I love how you know you say that you can use yourself as this crossover design, and I think that's 
a, a really good way for people to approach just figuring out their own programming where you have this consistency of yourself and you can try something and you know you're the same person later on but that's also you know brings in that other point you made about how you can change over time and there are also lots of variables and it's kind of interesting how i think a lot of people's nutrition and training protocols for themselves end up being you know set when they're a beginner and they kind of like adhere to those you know i i tried you know i tried high carbs uh, for like a month back when i was in my first year of training and didn't do anything for me so i'll never do it again yeah and, that's, you know, that's very true yeah i'm in a very privileged position to be having students and attached to a research center because like when i had a master's student who was looking at very low carbohydrate diets and the impact in powerlifters and, and, and uh, Olympic weightlifters, I got to be part of the case series, you know? Mm. So I got to do a four week lead in eating my normal carb diet and then doing eight weeks at a, uh, a one gram per kg, which is basically, you know, for a, uh, a 200 pound dude that's eating like 70 something grams of carbohydrates. Uh, and then I got to have four weeks back my normal diet and I had, you know, subjective qualitative interviews, quantitative interviews. We tracked my performance. I had one RM tests and we looked at ultrasound measures of muscle thickness. So I have pretty solid data on myself that goes, that's too low carbohydrate for me, you know? Mm. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting. And other people in that study did, like did fine. You looked at their, their performance curve on their one RM tests and how they felt and they either felt better or they felt the same. Uh, maybe they, their performance plateaued, but they dropped in their uh, their skin folds a little bit. So it in, enhanced satiety, at least to the point where they could lose some fat in it before it level, leveling off. So there were interesting effects where we saw individual differences. You know, I was one of the people who actually had a decrease in relative and absolute strength. So it was like, oh, this is just too low, you know, mm. um, while other people saw no change or their absolute strength went down, but their relative strength went up. So I think you just have to be aware that there are individual differences and uh, it's it's worth going through the process of, of being pretty deliberate and paying attention and trying things out. And I did that like in 2014 or 15, you know, and I've been lifting since 2005 or four. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I think that's fascinating. Like this is something I've also kind of noticed, you know, when you're attached to some sort of academic or actually, actually doing things rigorously, it really like illuminates things that you probably otherwise wouldn't notice. And I remember, you know, starting out filming or some vlogs and actually breaking down my macros in the off season early on and in, in, and realizing, you know, maybe I wasn't as like exactly what I would thought, thought or was just eyeballing or, you know, when people say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go low carb and then they just, you know, just eat a bunch of bacon and just like very free handedly and actually thinking about it and tracking it might be a good idea absolutely in terms of you know on a related note to carbs what's the role of insulin for bodybuilders and how should people think about that yeah i mean um people are probably aware that at a certain level in competitive bodybuilding that that's a relatively common uh I wouldn't say performance enhancing drug, but physique enhancing drug, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that people uh, will inject insulin and take high levels of carbohydrate uh, to try to supercompensate glycogen and reach, uh, you know, concentrations of insulin in their body that are that are many times higher than you would see endogenously. And at those very 
super physiological ranges, there are some some notable anabolic effects. Um, and this has been the source, especially in the 90s and the 2000s, of many people suggesting to have you know, high glycemic, fast digesting carbs in mm-hmm. large amounts immediately after training to try to essentially replicate that same you know, PED usage protocol and, and arguable benefit. Unfortunately, though, it's it's been pretty well established at this point that at the physiological ranges of insulin increases you can get from meals, it doesn't approach anywhere near close enough to actually have a direct mm. anabolic effect. Um, so I think insulin is really just, um, I don't think it's something that is very helpful for natural bodybuilders to focus on or understand unless they have, you know, like diabetes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is just useful to know that that is, you know, one of the hormones in our body that has to do with uh, metabolic processes as where as well as uh, hunger and satiety signaling. Um, insulin is anti-catabolic. You know, I have seen, you know, some studies in natural or one study I should specifically say by, and I always pronounce this last name wrong. It's M A E S T U Maestu. I don't know. I want to say it is a um, could be a Finnish researcher. I'm forgetting the country of origin. But anyway, they looked at a group of dieting bodybuilders and they found that the retention of lean body mass was related to who had the highest insulin concentrations throughout the, uh, the, the, the contest prep period. And you could have a very hormone focused way of looking at that and be like, oh, so I need to have a higher carbohydrate diet and to, to get insulin up. Like maybe, but it might just be that those who dieted on lower calories had lower insulin levels and lost more muscle mass, you know? And so it's, it's, I think it's one of those things that it's, uh, it's how things work, not like why things work to some degree. That's not true. Like it is actually why things work. Like insulin is, it has a direct effect. And if you inject it, it changes things. But I think for the most part, um, metabolic hormones for, for natural bodybuilders, the most utilitarian, way of thinking of them is that they're how our bodies handles our macronutrients and how it gets things done. But they're just the workhorses. They don't generally in physiological ranges have independent effects that we need to worry about. You know, like you'll, you'll often hear justifications or old traditional justifications of, oh, you shouldn't eat late at night, you know, because those carbohydrates won't be used for, uh, for, for energy. So they're just going to get stored as fat. Right. Um, so Mm -hmm. don't eat carbohydrates after, x pm time um and this kind of and because oh it'll spike insulin and you won't do anything so it won't go to muscle let's get stored as fat and this is almost kind of looking at things too close under the microscope like if if insulin is is the uh the worker in a, a warehouse who takes a box and puts it on a shelf depending upon what's being told to, to be done right now you know exercise oh, i'll put it over here no exercise i'll put it over here if there's no box you won't put it anywhere. It doesn't matter the, the presence of it. Um, so that's kind of the way I look at an energy deficit or surplus. And you have to think about it in a longer time period. Like, yeah, so we have hormones that will put, you know, insulin in the box on the shelf, storing some body fat because you ate a meal before bed. Um, but then some point later in the day, if you're in a net calorie deficit, like between lunch and dinner tomorrow, the guy, a different guy comes in and takes it off the shelf and then uses that box for energy. So mm-hmm. like, you know, we, 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 we use and, uh, and, and store and release energy and that are, that were sourced from all macronutrients throughout the day. We're in a constant state of net energy flux and, or energy flux. And as the net 
energy deficit or surplus, which is going to have the biggest impact on, you know, whether we keep that stored fat on us or if we keep that stored glycogen in the muscle or we use it, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't really think um, it's something we need to worry about too much. Um, but, you know, when you see relationships with insulin and the research with body composition outcomes, I think it's generally a way of looking at, um, you know, was the person on a sufficient total energy diet and was that a lower or higher carbohydrate diet? And that's what you should probably think of, oh, the, what, the, what the relationship might have been dictated by. Mm-hmm. So now I have no excuse for slamming a whole box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch after my workout. I mean, the only excuse is it tastes good and you like it. And it's not that long ago that you were on stage and you're probably still pretty hungry. So it's all good, bro. <laughs> Haven't gotten to that level yet, but, um, you know, the whole box of cereal. But uh, you can, you can you know, look to look to role models for that. There you go. <laughs> What are your thoughts on carb cycling during bulking? You know, like higher carbs on certain days, training days, or yeah, I mean, the I think I think the shifts that you see in typical bodybuilding programs are not that large in terms of energy output. Um, you know, like we're just not burning that many calories, and when we do. I mean, for, for, I'd say most people are probably burning 200 to 400 calories per session, maybe closer to 400 on a leg day, maybe closer to 200 on like a shoulders and arms day. Um, and that is a small component of the total daily energy expenditure of most bodybuilders, 200 to 400 calories. If you think about your, your TDE, um, I would propose that if you had a day where you went grocery shopping and did a shoulders and arms day versus a day where you were relatively sedentary, uh, and did a leg day, it might be a similar total energy expenditure, you know? Mm. So, um, for the most part, I don't think it matters very much unless for some reason you have very high energy outputs. Um, so yeah. And, and I also don't know that it makes a lot of sense to have a lower energy intake on days where you're potentially recovering from those days where you had a high energy intake. So for, for the average bodybuilder, I tend to recommend a relatively static energy intake, but I still mm. think it should be able to fluctuate from day to day, like plus or minus 10%. I think so long as you're in a, in a net uh, surplus or deficit as per your goal, and you're not deviating massively uh, above or below that, mm. then a lot of those things kind of come out in the wash. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. And then... I guess we already basically touched on fats. So, you know, basically, as you said, you like, you actually like to set fat first and just kind of making mm. sure, you know, you're getting enough in what, what's the importance of fat for people? Yeah. I mean, there's the, there's the importance of it and there's what people focus on. Uh, and of course what people focus on, at least dudes is always testosterone. Right. But, um, so, <laughs> Uh, the importance of fat is, is relatively wide ranging, you know, everything from fat soluble vitamins uh, to satiety, food preferences mm. um, and, you know, the integrity of cells to as well as hormone production. Um, however, you know, our bodies are very efficient at making uh, different substrates out of other substrates. So it is not like being on too low of a fat diet is, is going to make a massive difference. Like there actually are, you know, at this stage, meta-analyses looking at, you know, like low fat diets, um, 
if I recall correctly, uh, there was a meta-analysis just published either last year or the year prior. I want to say maybe, I, I guess it's actually two, 2020. Um, and it was by uh, Horrell and colleagues. And um, I want to say that it was, no, that's not, that's not the one. It was by, I can't remember the, the, the study, but there was a recent meta-analysis that, um, that looked at fat intake and the effect on, uh, on, on testosterone levels. And they did show that chronically low fat intakes can have a small effect on, on testosterone levels. But interestingly enough, there was a, another recent meta-analysis that did come out this year by Whitaker and colleagues. Uh, it was titled Low Carbohydrate Diets in Men's Cortisol and Testosterone Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And they found that when consuming a high-protein diet, a low-carbohydrate diet also resulted in decreases in testosterone. So the general recommendation is that being on a low-carb or a low-fat diet is probably not a good idea. Um, you, you probably want to be what would be considered something in the quote-unquote moderate range. Um, and I think if you look at the research, what probably is a decent moderate range is what I recommended before, somewhere between that 20 to 40%. So yeah, I think that's, that, that's, that's probably appropriate for the vast majority of people. Um, but not necessarily everyone. So I think it is worth experimenting with that stuff. Um, but for the most part, yeah, you, I think, I think it's important just to, to give some context as to when that matters. The fact that your testosterone might be slightly lower. Um, if you're seeing variations of like 10% and you're in the normal range already in your testosterone levels, mm. that is less than the normal diurnal variations that you might get from one time to another. And if you were to go get your testosterone checked three times in three separate weeks on the same day at the same time, you would see far greater than that level of variation most of the time. Mm. So there's a lot of variation in hormone levels, um, especially sex hormone levels. And I think people get a little more confidence than they should when they get lab tests or when they see these studies as to how stable those levels are. And even beyond that, when something does have a measurable impact on testosterone, that doesn't mean it has a measurable impact on any physiological outcome that we care about. You know, like even even the very few testosterone boosters that actually work as far as actually changing testosterone levels, almost never show an effect on fat loss, body composition changes, hypertrophy or performance, because it takes more than that to move the needle. No, no pun intended. So um, God. you know, we, we get so, uh, focused on the fact that these huge bodybuilders compared to us as, as natural athletes, um, they're using testosterone. So we really need to think like, if we want to be anywhere near their level, we got to maximize our endogenous production, but it's, it's the magnitudes are so different that it is almost a different ball game, you know, mm -hmm. um, worrying about and playing with the difference between, you know, 500 versus 600 on uh, your testosterone levels is not the same as having 10 times that versus five times that. And it, uh, it, it, it's, it, I think it's majoring in the minors at, at best for most of the time. So yeah, I, I think, I, I know you didn't even ask about testosterone levels, but it's almost impossible. Every time you talk about fat, oh, yeah. the justification you'll see in the research and in the general conversations, uh, are typically related to, um, you know, testosterone outcomes was what, what people are primarily focused on for, for better or for worse. So I think generally it's probably not something that people need to worry about unless they are on the extreme ends of the diet or if they are actually someone who has a, uh, you know, a clinically like low level. And by the way, 
the other one I had the author totally wrong. It was 2001, 2021, and it was also Whitaker, low fat diets and testosterone events, systematic review and meta-analysis of intervention studies. So same group, Whitaker looked at both low fat diets and low carbohydrate diets in the last two years, found the same kind of thing. You probably don't want to be hanging out on the low end of either. So as always, moderation seems to be key on average. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I think that's a underlying theme to our conversation. I think will apply to a lot of things in nutrition. And, you know, on a related note, on moving on to micronutrients, thinking mm. that now that we've covered protein, carbs, and fats, micros is a natural next step. And, you know, people often talk about how, like, they they need to boost certain vitamins or minerals. How should people think about micronutrients? Yeah, I think micronutrients are important. They are essential nutrients. We're talking about, you know, vitamins and minerals here that play essential roles in energy metabolism, health function, and can have effects on, on performance uh, when they are um, deficient. It's typically never going to be something where if you enhance it to a higher level, it is going to have a beneficial uh, effect on performance or body composition when you're going from something that is an adequate level in your body. Um, so I think for the most part, uh, the way to think about this from a practical perspective is ensuring that you have a well-balanced diet in terms of quote-unquote food quality, and then knowing that that will probably result at least when you're in a uh, eating an energy balance or at, at a surplus in a sufficient micronutrient intake. So the way you can do this is by simply ensuring that you have adequate consumption of fruits and vegetables across a range of colors. You know, if I want to go back to sounding like I'm a dietitian from 1999, eat your colors, you know, um, <laughs> and they're, they're still right, you know, um, despite whatever random person on Instagram or YouTube is telling you that, you know, plants are trying to kill you and, you know, that vegetables are actually bad and that we just need to eat eating meat. Uh, that's actually horseshit. So, yeah, the, the, the overwhelming data uh, has, has only found positive outcomes from eating fruits and vegetables. And a large part of that is because they contain a lot of uh, vitamins and minerals. So um, and, and there's plenty of minerals that are also coming from fat and protein sources. So I think generally you want to stray away from the traditional approach to bodybuilding diets where you have a very limited food list. And you want to think about having an inclusive rather than an exclusive diet. So the goal is not necessarily to be able to have, you know, pound down two boxes of Captain Crunch post-workout because you can and you're having a quote-unquote flexible diet. Uh, the goal is to have a, a rich number of uh, protein, carbohydrate, and fat sources and to have fruits and vegetables pretty much with every meal, you know. I think a general rule of thumb is that for every 500 calories, you probably want a serving of fruit and you want a serving of vegetables, and that will get you there and appropriate for your, your intake. So if you've got an off-season uh, five-foot-two bikini competitor, that's probably still three to four servings of both um, per day. Uh, and for your, if you're talking about you know uh, a heavyweight bodybuilder, one and a half to two times that, and that's hard to do, you know. Yeah. So if you can't get that in, then I, or if that's cre creating so much satiation that you're struggling to get that in, I normally go okay, fine for for one thousand calories, cut it in half because it's still pretty good. Uh, and then I go with the, the per 500 calories for contest prep only. Um, but yeah, like when you look at the granted epidemiolo epidemiological meta-analyses where they look at like all-cause mortality associations with fruit and vegetable intake, 
you're getting up to, you know, eating damn near like a kilo per day of fruits and vegetables before, you know, you, you, you see that you plateau. So they're pretty good for you. And um, they're, they're great from a satiation perspective. Um, they are very low energy density and you're getting nutrients, you're getting fiber and you're getting a lot of water, which and then you have chew time. So, you know, when you look at studies that seem mm. to, uh, that when you look at like what results in a, a better maintenance of weight and a lower energy intake habitually without actually counting calories or modifying it, energy density is typically one of the explanatory variables. You know, if you eat the same 2000 calories from very energy dense foods that you can eat quickly versus a bunch of fruits and vegetables, fruit, and like low fat dairy, you're generally going to see people uh, eating a similar weight of food, but less total calories when they focus on uh, lower versus higher energy density, which is a kind of a cool finding. A lot of research by Barbara Rolls, if you want to look into that. You heard it here first. Eat your fruits and vegetables. That's right. So, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. On top of that, I, I would say that for someone who is dieting um, or who is not very active and has a low total daily energy expenditure, mm. it's not a bad idea to consider taking, and this is not a recommendation. I'm not your doctor. I'm not a registered dietitian. To consider taking a low dose, like one per day, uh, multivitamin, not ones with like four digit percentages of these things mm -hmm. that has like, you know, not, not the, the animal pack ones or, or the horse pills, you know, um, the goal is not to have discotheque themed urine that is, you know, bright yellow, uh, or, or looks radioactive. The goal is just to cover your bases and provide a safety net to make sure that, you know, if you're not eating enough food because you're dieting or you just don't have a very high energy intake and therefore you can't have quite the same variety and uh, in total intake of food, which is going to scale to the total intake of micronutrients you're consuming, that perhaps you take a uh, multivitamin to, to kind of cover your bases. Yeah, no, I like that kind of approach where, you know, with, multi with micronutrients, it's really only when you run into a deficit where you have problems with a deficiency um, with something. So as long as you're having a very diet and having that sort of focus on inclusivity, which is, I, I love that term, and just having that variation, trying to switch up your your grocery list and, you know, just checking out different things and trying them is a good rule of thumb. Yeah, and on that note, I think there's a difference between variety and variation. If I, I run into a lot of bodybuilders who are like, but I like to just stick to my meal setups, but that's fine. But if your setups contain a high amount of variety, like if, if you have two pieces of fruit at lunch, you know, and they're they're almost always like, you know, a banana and an apple, but at breakfast you also have, you know, something else, and then you have a snack and it's something else, and then at dinner you have primarily vegetables and at lunch or breakfast you have, you know, vegetables with your with your breakfast. And those are always the same, but you have like eight different types throughout the day. That's probably fine. You don't have to like change it up on Tuesday. Um, but it is it's important to have variety, not necessarily variation, if you will. Um, so yeah, you want to just make sure you got enough in there that you're, you're getting a, a good spectrum of, of colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no good points. Every day then, is pride month for your vegetables. Just think of it like exactly. that. <laughs> and let's see. Oh yeah. In terms of food composition, you know, is there much of a difference in terms of, you know, like having more like the whole single ingredient foods mm. sort of paradigm. 
Right. So processed versus unprocessed foods. Mm. Yeah, actually, there, there's, a, there's a pretty cool study on this. Um, unsurprisingly, it was done by, by Kevin Hall, who's done, I think, some of the, the coolest research in our, in our, in, in like, in the whole world of nutrition. It goes way beyond what, what bodybuilders are interested in. And uh, he had a, a study where, you know, like a lot of the typical metabolic ward research, and for those who don't know, metabolic ward is where you are in a facility, typically a few small rooms at most, or a facility with a small room where it's completely controlled so they know what your energy output is. And then all of the uh, the food intake is tightly controlled by, by a staff. So they mm. are the the highest level of control to the point where they cause problems with ecological validity. You know, metabolic wards are very expensive and you have to stay inside all day. So sometimes it can artificially decrease your energy output and how active you would be. It obviously changes your lifestyle. But what it does do is we get very tight control and understanding of what is in energy in, energy out, and its composition. And then if you combine that with things like, you know, doubly labeled water, uh, or uh, or DEXA or or various other things, you can get a super comprehensive look at all aspects of uh, total daily energy intake and total daily energy expenditure. And most metabolic ward studies, they're tightly controlling energy intake. Uh, but this was actually a pretty cool study they did in 2019 titled "Ultra Processed Diets Cause Excess Calorie Intake and Weight Gain: An Inpatient Randomized Controlled Trial of Ad Libitum Food Intake." So for those who don't know, ad libitum means eat as much as you want. And so this was pretty cool in that what they did was they provided a, a very similar baseline uh, diet of either ultra processed foods or like you said, those kind of single ingredient food items. And then they gave people these snacking opportunities to eat whatever they wanted at other, other times, so long as it fit within those two categories that they were grouped into. And so they, so they took these 20 adults and they presented them with foods that were uh, matched for, for energy, macronutrients, sugar, fat, fiber for two weeks each. So all of the kind of the big ticket items that we often associate with health outcomes or body composition outcomes, and then, you know, allowed them to, okay, these diets would be the same if you ate the same amount in terms of those variables, but you can eat as much of it as you want. So mm. they were looking at the effect of processing on mm. habitual energy intake. And they found that during the processed diet, these participants ate 500 calories per day more uh, than during the, the, uh, the unprocessed diet. And what occurred was exactly what you would expect um, when you're in a 500 calorie, when you're eating 500 calories more, you're going to put on some body fat. When you're eating 500 calories, calories less, you're going to start to, to lose some. So yeah, they saw that um, the, the participants ate the processed foods faster and they had um, poor satiety, if you will, if you will, from looking at hormonal profiles. So like PYY increased and, and ghrelin uh, decreased compared to baseline during the unprocessed diet, uh, but it wasn't during the processed diet, if I recall correctly. And uh, yeah, generally they were eating faster, their appetites were suppressed less, um, and there was less TEF, the thermic effective food, um, which has been shown in prior research as well. And those are all potential explanatory variables for why you saw them eating more uh, and, and, sliding, and, and sliding towards the, the accrual of body fat versus even st st starting to lose it a little bit in the other group. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a great study. I think it's open access if so anyone wants to read it, but in general, you, I, I see bodybuilders being able to use this to their advantage or their disadvantage, depending on how they do it. So if you're the type of person who really struggles to put on weight in the off season and satiety mm -hmm. is the enemy, this might be a good reason to include some, you know, still getting your fruits and vegetables in, but also maybe having a burger or, or a burrito or French fries or things like that. Um, 
you just have to be aware that typically when you eat processed foods, it can, like if you're trying to eat a high carbohydrate, lower fat diet, it's kind of hard to do that. A lot of processed foods are also fried foods and, and relatively high in fat, um, but you can, and, um, and it can make, can make things a little easier. So there's, there's a number of tricks that you could do to keep your, uh, your calorie intake up when your satiety seems to be just always present. Uh, liquid calories, you know, drinking juices, uh, making smoothies and blending so you don't have to chew through it, uh, and also including some quote-unquote junk foods. Um, those are standard tricks of the trade for people who really struggle to put on weight. And those people on the other side of the spectrum who really struggle with uh, gaining weight too quickly in the off-season. Um, I find this is most common in people who compete every year um, mm. because they spend a solid three to six months after their show still kind of you know, traumatized and super hungry and food focused. Yeah, me right um, now. And then, they, yeah, and they're thinking, oh, and I'm going to compete next year, so this is all good. I just need to put on weight and, and get big. Um, and to some degree, that's totally fine, but it can also result in this like rapid weight gain um, where you look up one day and you're like, shit, I need to do like a, a pretty substantial cut mid off season. I'm competing next year. So um, you can get into hot water, which I, why I think it's valuable to have more than a year between seasons. So you can kind of get back to being a more well-regulated human who can eat normally and have normal satiety and hunger responses to meals. But anyway, um, for those who struggle to gain weight too quickly, you can also eat, you know, primarily single item, non-processed ingredient foods. Um, basically, you're just looking at a similar diet to what you'd use during prep, but just more of it, you know, and uh, because you're so hungry all the mm. time or, or because you just tend to eat a lot of food, even in the presence of that, you can get yourself to a more appropriate surplus um, and uh, but but not too high so that you're you're gaining too much body fat and making the next prep harder on yourself. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, that's really cool. How? Yeah. Like you learn a lot of these things and bodybuilding and you realize yeah some of the things that you use to help yourself you know lose weight can also be you know engineered in the ver reverse when you're trying to bulk if you especially if you you're like me and i tend to have more trouble putting on weight especially later on in a bulk mm, yeah absolutely on that note actually the thermic effect of food is interesting did that you know that research talk about how much of a difference in thermic effect there is between processed and unprocessed stuff you know, the uh, that that is some degree speculative, but it's it's actually based on a 2010 study. So there's a study by uh, Barr and Wright, and it's titled uh, Postprandial Energy Expenditure in Whole Food and Processed Foods Implications for Daily Energy Expenditure. And what they did was they compared um, processed versus unprocessed foods and actually looked at energy expenditure. And in that one, it, it did make a, a substantial difference. I want to say the average expenditure for the whole food meal was like 137 calories. And hmm. for the processed meal, it was like 73 calories. So we're looking hmm. at almost a twofold difference. Um, there hasn't been a lot of research on this to really look at the difference uh, in, in, in a more wider variety of foods and to the degree that that, that, that matters. Um, but they were basically just, uh, I think they were sandwiches. And one was like processed cheese and white bread uh, and the other one was like multi-grain bread with, you know, like actual, like slicing off a cheese, not like the one with, you know, the, the peel, <laughs> you know, um, and they were comparable in terms of their, their protein, carbohydrate and fat. They weren't perfectly matched. Uh, and this wasn't healthy women. It wasn't like, um, you know, people with diabetes or anything like that. And it was in a crossover design, so it's pretty well controlled. Um, but it was relatively small sample size. So it was like, I think under 20 people. 
So, I mean, I would I would like to see more replication, but uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if this was a persistent finding, and it and it could add up, I think. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that also triggers. I don't think we ever talked about this before about protein. You know, the thermic effect mm. of different macros. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So protein does have the highest thermic effect. And I think we talked about in the protein uh, focused episode that it's more challenging for our body to get energy from protein. Um, and it's not there's no storage form for it outside of actually being constructed into tissue, right? Uh, so yeah, the, the process of liberating energy from protein uh, is more costly metabolically than it is from carbohydrate and fat. Uh, carbohydrate is relatively low cost, like I think half that of, of protein, but fat is almost no cost. Um, and it is the, the, the quickest one you, you can, you know, the triglyceride that you eat can be very easily converted into body fat and stored. Uh, it is uh, our preferred storage form, hence why, you know, even someone at 5% body fat can live in total starvation off their fat stores far longer than, than if they were 5% body fat and carb loaded. It would, you know, be, be quite low in terms of carbohydrate within two days while they would probably be able to go a couple of weeks before they started to starve uh, and, and, you know, their body fat levels would drive down to below essential levels and they would die. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, yeah, so generally, what was the question? Let's, um, oh, the, just the thermic oh, effect. Oh, thermic effect. Yeah, I, I got sidetracked on, on people dying of starvation. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so the thermic effect of food, it generally goes, you know, protein, carbohydrate, fat. And you will see slightly higher uh, thermic effects in people eating high-protein diets, which consist of almost all, all bodybuilders. Um, and, you know, this has become somewhat of a topic because of a series of studies by Antonio and colleagues where they've looked at small sample size outpatient uh, high-protein diets, really high-protein diets, often comparing what we would consider a high-protein versus a very high-protein diet. So typically... We're talking about a 1.8 to 2.2 gram per kg protein diet compared to something in the three to four gram range. It's like three or four studies. And in a few of these, uh, you know, they advised people to uh, consume similar amount of calories, but in one condition, eat more protein and the other one eat less. And the reporting was that uh, either they did so, but they lost body fat in the higher protein group, or they did so. And despite eating more calories, they didn't gain more body fat and there were similar changes. And a lot of the voices in the bodybuilding community are like, aha, higher protein intakes don't uh, necessarily drive, you know, greater muscle, uh, muscle building, you know, above kind of the, the ranges that we have suggested in, in larger scale meta-analyses, you know, capping out around 2.2 grams per kg. But they may help, help you, you know, lose body fat or recomposition. They're a key, a key tool for recomposition. But I think it's really important that we understand what was done in these studies. They took sometimes less than 10 people or around 10 to 15 people. And they said, hey, uh, here's a MyFitnessPal account. Um, here's some whey protein and, you know, drink more of this in this group. And then we'll come in and we'll, we'll do a body composition test. And that is useful. We know what happens when you tell people to eat really high protein diets, um, that they seem to lose some body fat or they seem to try to eat as much as when they're not eating as much protein, but not gaining more weight than, you, than, than would be predicted, or not gaining as much weight as would be predicted. Uh, but it's not a metabolic ward study. It's good that I talked about what a metabolic ward is earlier. So the most likely reason that is, is that really high protein intakes are challenging to adhere to, 
Um, having, mm. you know, a high protein diet from food and then basically having like three to four more protein shakes on top of that per day. I think it starts to lead to that. Yeah, my, my, I finished my meal, but there's a lot of food left on the plate. Uh, mm. And people just over reporting their actual protein intake and energy intake and being too satiated or just tired of eating. Um, and instead of that being the, the common conclusion that I see in people interpreting the Antonio studies, they're interpreting it as that there is uh, it's so metabolically challenging to store um, calories from protein as fat that it kind of games the system and that the thermic effect of the overall diet is so high that it actually you know, pushes you into a deficit uh, and that those two combined factors mean that you know, bulking on high protein diets is going to keep you leaner or allow you to recomp. And unfortunately, that's not been shown in more highly controlled research. So there's a study by Bray and colleagues that came out in 2012 uh, where they compared isocalorically matched diets in a metabolic ward. Only downside of the study is no resistance training. Um, and uh, they did find that those eating a higher protein diet put on a little more lean body mass, not necessarily muscle. Um, however, the amount of fat mass gained was purely related to and completely explained by the total energy surplus. Um, so even when one group had around on average 1.8 grams per kg, the other group had around three grams per kg, which is quite comparable to some of the studies by Antonio. And when you look at the study by Bray, you'll see that it's percentage, uh, it's like, it gives you like a different percentages of protein, but you can go in and look at the mean body weight and the mean intake of protein and you can calculate it. And it's basically comparing 1.8 to 3.0. So it is, um, a more tightly regulated study, more, more controlled with uh, findings that line up better with our understanding of metabolism, while the other one is, you know, people doing their thing on MyFitnessPal and coming back to get tested. So I think we should probably uh, base our conclusions primarily on the more tightly controlled study. Hmm. Um, but it is still useful information. It's kind of the same thing. Like if you're someone who struggles to not gain weight too quickly in the offseason, whether it's due to behavioral changes or metabolic changes or a combination thereof, eating a very high protein diet might help mitigate some of that, that weight gain. So you can take some of the combined factors of eating a high protein diet and very, uh, you know, low energy density, high fruit and vegetable intake, high fiber intake approach. And you might find that you can get yourself closer to a more appropriate rate of weight gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a good sort of takeaway from this is that using all these little, you know, tips and tricks as, as little fine tuning, um, sort of tools in your toolkit to help you, you know, sustainably reach that kind of overall calorie intake that you want to be aiming for. So, yeah, I think this has been a really good episode. We covered a lot of stuff. Where do you stand, you know, in terms of when you're on your off season, do you tend to like have trouble hitting enough calories or not enough? Uh, I just look at my body weight over time and make sure that it's going up at the rate that I've decided. And anytime it is not, if I'm trying to gain weight, then I generally just try to eat out more. That's like the way I do it. So I leverage yeah. the, the slightly more processed and tasty food ability. Um, or I'll have, I'll, I'll start to also just add a carbohydrate uh, source to like my lunch. Like my baseline lunch is like two pieces of fruit, a carrot, and like a can of tuna and a protein bar. And so it's like, because I eat super boring, it's very easy to go, and I'll have a bag of popcorn, you know, with that. And uh, if I'm not gaining weight at the rate I want. Um, and then, yeah, just more nights out of the week, I will suggest that we get pizza basically. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, love it. Just the, the bulking pizza. 
Yeah, man. I keep it pretty straightforward. I have a relatively solid meal structure. So I eat breakfast, I eat lunch, uh, I have a protein bar on days I don't train between lunch and dinner, or I have a post-workout shake on days I do train. Then I have dinner, and then uh, two to three hours after dinner, I have a Greek yogurt and I go to bed. So um, things I can do if I'm not gaining weight is I'll make that Greek yogurt um, like uh, also have added sugars so that I can get, you know, I just choose which Greek yogurt do I want, the, the one that's plain or, or the one that is flavored so I can mm. get more calories. Or like I said, I'll, I'll add more to my lunch or I'll make that dinner something that I didn't prepare more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, having that structure, yeah, makes it really easy to just mm -hmm. make fine changes with with precision without actually having to plan out a lot of stuff. Absolutely. So, anyways, this has been a great episode, and I love how you know you can have Eric on a podcast, and you'll be talking about you know carbs, and he's just like, yeah, we've got a study coming out, you know, <laughs> right, on this one and on that too. So cutting edge it's a privilege to have eric on if you want to learn more about nutrition for bodybuilding check out eric's book the pyramids on nutrition so that's going to be key and his books are still the first ones that i recommend people get into when they are entering our fitness and bodybuilding niche so thanks again for being on the show eric my pleasure i appreciate the recommendation mm -hmm. links will be in the description